it's been an exciting past few weeks for me. And I've been looking forward to uh, getting into this new book of Revelation. Um, I, it's been 2013, the last time that I taught the book of Revelation in this church. And I'm excited to get into it again. And I think there's no better time than the days that we're living in. I said that back in 2013. I say it again today that there is no better time to talk about Christ's return than it is today. And so let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. And uh, it's always going to be an easy book for you to find because it's the last book in the Bible. No problem finding it, turn to the end, and there you are, the book of Revelation. I, um, I start this book knowing that even in the church of this size, that we come from various backgrounds and maybe various understandings concerning the prophecies of the book of Revelation. Some of you maybe have never read, I asked uh, a few weeks back, I asked how many of you have ever been taught the book of Revelation? And there was quite a few of you that did not, that raised your hand, you hadn't been taught. And there was a number of you that said to me after the service, I would love to go through the book of Revelation. And so here we are. I know that in a group of this size, there's various backgrounds that we've come from. Uh, various understandings concerning the book of Revelation. But what I want to do this morning, and I'm really uh, calling this the introduction uh, to the book of Revelation, I want to give us some foundation to going forward. You see, because of all the various interpretations uh, that people have and different churches and denominations and individuals have concerning this book, I believe that I need to give a foundation for what you would believe. And this is what I think is important. I do not want all of us to be able to say like so many Christians do, well, that's just what I was taught. That's just what, but I want you to know and I want you to have a foundation by which you can say, I believe this because I have come to learn this. And that's the approach uh, that I'm going to take even in this introduction this morning. So it's going to be quite a bit of information, not overwhelming amount, but it's going to be a quite a bit of information. But I think it's important. I believe it's foundational to getting into this letter. I read that 40% or less of churches and pastors today engage their churches on the topic of end times prophecy. You would think that it would be uh, a topic that every pastor and every church would want to engage in. I mean, is there anything more exciting than the fact that we're going to stand someday in the presence of the Lord? I mean, to me as a Christian, it's all about what Christ did at the cross that leads to the fact that I have eternal life with him for eternity. Someone said of the book of Revelation 
that it's one of the most misunderstood books in the world. That's a big statement. The most misunderstood book in all the world. This is what Jesus says about this letter. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. I believe that the book of Revelation is a letter, a book that God wants us to understand. He doesn't want us to be confused about it. And we shouldn't be. There are things in Scripture that sometimes take a lot of digging in and a lot of searching to really come to a conviction of what it's saying. But the book of Revelation is no different. We search it out. We look at the Word of God in its entirety, and I believe that you will have a conviction in your own heart of what you believe. I believe the book of Revelation is a book that's being missed by many today. And so we're going to get into it, and I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm going to lay out to you, uh, even this morning, where my beliefs are or my understanding is in regards to this letter. It's true that there are many teachers that are out there that we refer to them as sensationists. In other words, a lot of the things that maybe they apply or teach from the book of Revelation, I would even say is unbiblical. And so that confusion, and with all those various sensationists that are out there, there are a lot of Christians that have come to a place where they throw their hands up to the book and say, there's so much being said about this letter, this book, that I don't know what to believe, and I'm just going to let it go. And I don't believe that that's a good stance for us as Christians. I once heard the top ten ways to know if you're obsessed with end times Bible prophecy. Here's number one. You always leave the top down on your convertible in case the rapture happens. You never buy green bananas. You might never get to eat them. You talk your church into adapting the 60s pop song up, up, and away as a Christian hymn. Barcode readers or scanners make you nervous. You refuse a tax refund check because the amount came to 666. You can name more signs of the times than you can the Ten Commandments. You believe that there is an original Greek and Hebrew text with Schofield's notes, if you know what that is. You believe the term church fathers refers to Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye. You get goosebumps when you hear a trumpet. And you use the left behind books as devotional reading. 
They're meant to be funny. You're all serious on them. <laughs> but again, I think, is this guy serious? I believe that there's a lot of stuff out there uh, that would cause a lot of us to really shrink back from really having a stance, a position on what we believe about end times events. And 2,000 years ago, uh, Jesus sat with his disciples at the Last Supper. And he said this to them that evening in John 14. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. As I read these words, it makes me wonder if these words excite you or if they scare you. You see, there's a lot of Christians when it comes to the subject of standing face to face before the Lord. It's a scary thought. As a matter of fact, if I were to ask you the question, are you ready today to stand face to face with the Lord? I think many of us might say, I'm not ready. I, I, I don't want it to happen today. But that's not the place we're to be as Christians. Jesus is wanting to encourage his disciples here that I've, I'm going away, I'm going to be leaving, but I'm coming back to take you to be with me. There's many a people, my wife was one of them, that have been scared into the kingdom of God. Maybe you have. Scared into the kingdom of God. In other words, my wife as a young girl, junior uh, high age, was taken by a friend to a local church. That church at the time, and some of you might be familiar with it, there was a movie out years and years ago called A Thief in the Night. And it spoke about the rapture. And my wife sat there and watched that movie as a young girl. Didn't come from a Christian home. Didn't know any of these things. Was really scared into the kingdom. You might say, well, is that really a good way to get scared into the kingdom of God? I started thinking of Hebrews 10.31 that says that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I do believe that even as human beings, the thought of someday standing face to face with the living God, it should bring an awe to us. And for those that don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I believe that it should bring a fear to your heart. I remember as a high school age young man, starting to read a book back in the early 70s called The Late Great Planet Earth. Any of you heard of that? The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. 
I remember my mom getting that book. I remember my mom reading it and letting me read it. I remember sitting with my mom for hours. You could ask my dad. Hours sitting with my mom talking about end times prophecy. I knew nothing then. The only thing I knew was from Hal Lindsey's book. It's all I knew and I would read and we would talk about end times on many occasions. I can remember being stirred in my heart as a young man with the thought of the Lord returning, with the thought of me going to be with the Lord. And you know what? Nothing's changed. I'm as stirred today, actually more stirred today than I was then. Let's read our text this morning. We're only going to look at three verses. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. It starts with the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which were written in it. For the time is near. When we read and we start this letter with the revelation of Jesus Christ, those words alone tell us that we're about to enter into something very unique. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which we're told that God the Father gave to his son, Jesus, this revelation. To show, and you might make note of this, to show not hidden things, but things that he wants to reveal to show his servants, and that servants is you and I, things which must shortly take place. And he, that he is Jesus, sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. That's the order in which this revelation came. The father to the son. And the son to an angel. And an angel to the apostle John. Who was the writer of the book of Revelation. But he also was the writer of the gospel of John. And also the writer of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Those are the links. If you want to say. By which God chose to bring this revelation. To mankind. Verse 1 also states that the things that are being revealed must shortly take place. Or they will quickly take place might be another way we could say it. Which means that when the day does come, there's gonna, these things are going to happen without delay. They're going to happen quickly. When that day comes, 
things will happen quickly and without delay. In verse 2, John, we're told, who bore witness of the word of God. In other words, John bore witness that this was, in fact, the word of God. And to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that John saw. It's important to note that this is the first time that it speaks of John seeing something. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we're going to see as we go through these 22 chapters of Revelation that the word I saw is used 51 times in this letter. John saw something. The Lord revealed something to him in a very tangible way that he saw something with his very eyes. It's actually the Greek word, I do. And the Greek word I do speaks of divine knowledge, divine perception that John was receiving when he received this revelation by this angel. It was divine. God was showing him something. He actually had a vision of something. He actually saw something with his physical eyes. This letter of Revelation is the 66th book, the last book of the Bible. It's the 27th and the last New Testament book. It has 22 chapters in it and 404 verses in this letter. The book of Revelation, it's and these are important points. I don't bring these things up to you just to convey a bunch of information to you. I want you to have an understanding that this book that we're reading here, the book of Revelation, really when we get to the last book of the Bible, it's actually telling us what all of the Old Testament prophets already said ahead of that. They already foretold of these days that were coming and the book of Revelation is really just an unfolding of everything that was already said. That's an important point to note. The book of Revelation is rooted in the Old Testament prophecies. As a matter of fact, it contains more than 500 allusions to the Old Testament. And 278 of the 404 verses that we have in the book of Revelation, they make some reference to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament prophets. That's 70% of the book of Revelation that you could find in the Old. So the book of Revelation doesn't just stand on its own. It's actually an unfolding, an unveiling of what the prophets were told hundreds and thousands of years earlier. Listen to what Dr. Henry Morris wrote in his book, The Revelation Record. He says, the book of Revelation is the sequel to the book of Genesis. Think about that. Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, 
Revelation, the last book of the Bible. The book of Revelation, he wrote, is the sequel to the book of Genesis. The two books together, bounding all history, bounding all of God's revelations to mankind, they constitute the Alpha and the Omega of God's written word. The, begin, the book of beginnings is Genesis. And the book of unveilings is the book of Revelation. When you read your Bible, there is a thread, there's a, re, a thread of redemption that runs through the whole entire Bible. It starts with the perfection of man in the garden, and then the fall by chapter 3. And by the time you get to the book of Revelation, the whole plan of God's redemption has unfolded to this world. I have some slides. Uh, slide 3 that you can see and you might be able to see that. I'm not sure if you can, but uh, Henry Morris, he went on to give these comparisons. I thought they were interesting. Uh, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 1, you can read in verse 4 that there was in the creation of the earth a division in light and darkness. And then in the book of Revelation, in chapter 21, we read, no night there, there will be no night. In Genesis, the division of the land and the sea, this is all in the creation of the, the, the world. Revelation 21, there will be no more sea. In Genesis 1.16, the rule of sun and the moon. And then in Revelation 21, no need of sun and the moon. Do you see these parallels? From the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible, the first heaven and the first earth were finished. And then in Revelation 21, a new heaven and earth forever. And then you have in Genesis 2, man in a prepared garden. And then in Revelation 21, man in a prepared city by God. A river flowing out of Eden, Genesis 2.10. A river flowing from God's throne, Revelation 22.1. The tree of life in the midst of the garden, Genesis 2.9. And the tree of life throughout the city, Revelation 22.2. Gold in the land, Genesis 2.12. Gold in the city, Revelation 21.21. 21. Bedulam and onyx stone, Genesis 2.12. And all manner of precious stones in Revelation 21 19. God walking in the garden, Genesis 3 8. God dwelling with his people in Revelation 21 3. The Spirit energizing, Genesis 1 2. And the Spirit inviting, drawing, Revelation 22 17. The bride formed for her husband. Genesis 2.21, the bride adorned for her husband in Revelation 21.2. The command to multiply in Genesis 1.28 and the nations of the saved in Revelation 21.24. Garden accessible to the liar in Genesis 3.1-5 and the city is closed to all liars, Revelation 21, 27. 
man in God's image. Genesis 1.27, man in God's presence. In Revelation 21.3, man the probationer. In Genesis 2.17, and man the heir. In Revelation 21.17, God is so... Uh, awesome. And just in, just in how the whole Bible was put together. From the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, this redemptive plan comes full circle. The question has been asked, is the book of Revelation a book of prophecy or is it a book of history? I have... Another slide, I don't know if we have those slides, but slide six. The word prophecy, or the word to prophesy, is found nine times in the book of Revelation. By definition, prophecy is this. It's the speaking forth of the mind and the counsel of God. That's what prophecy is. It's the foretelling of the will of God, whether with reference to the past, present, or the future. And so we see all the way through Scripture, prophecy through God's Word. We find, actually, the word prophecy or prophesy in the noun form and in the verb form. We find it nine times throughout the book of Revelation. I say the book of Revelation is a book of prophecy. It's not just a history book. Again, we read in, <clears throat> excuse me, Revelation 1-3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written in it for the time is near. I think it tells us right up front this is a book of prophecy. You go to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 7. Jesus' words, he says this, Behold, I am coming quickly, and blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I believe that the book of Revelation speaks of end times events, future events, Things that come. It's not just a book of a history lesson. So how many prophecies do we have in the Bible? I thought this was very interesting. J. Barton Payne, the author of the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, he arrived at a specific number in the counting of Bible prophecies. In it he writes that there are a total of 1,817 biblical prophecies. Of these prophecies, 1,239 are in the Old Testament and 578 of them are in the New Testament. By Payne's count, the 1,817 prophecies involved 8,352 of the Bible verses. And because there are 31,000, stay with me, because there are 31,124 verses in the Bible, the number of prophetic verses amounts to about 20 per, 
of the total number of verses in the Bible. That's one-fourth of the Bible that is prophetic, that is speaking forth prophecy for God, from God. He also writes that about 87% of Bible prophecy has already been fulfilled. Of the remaining 13%, 98% of those prophecies will come to pass during the tribulation period. We're living in unique days, church. 2,000 years have transpired from the days of Christ. We're living in a very unique time in church history. As we look at the prophecies that have been fulfilled and even the ones yet to be fulfilled, it should be exciting days for us as a church. Let me give you just a few of the prophecies that have been fulfilled. These prophecies, they concern Israel and the promises that God made to Israel. Ezekiel 36, 11. It says this, this is concerning, uh, this is concerning uh, the prosperity of modern day Israel today. <clears throat> Ezekiel 36, 11 says, I will multiply upon you man and beast. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. And they shall increase and bear young. I will make you inhabited as in the former times. Note that. <clears throat> and do better for you than at your beginnings. Then you, and this is why, then you will know that I am the Lord. Why does God do these things? Then you will know, Israel, that I am the Lord. Isaiah also prophesied concerning the land of Israel that the trees and the vegetation even of that land would grow in Israel in the last days. Isaiah 41 verse 18, I will open rivers and desolate heights and fountains in the midst of valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water. Make note of the desolate heights. Make known of the wilderness and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the olive tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together. And then he says, why? Why will God do this? Why did God prophesy that this would come to pass? Why are we seeing that today? If you took an aerial shot of the, uh, the land of Israel today, if you took it back 50 years ago and you take another picture today, you will see that that land, the geography of that land, has turned from brown to green. It is flourishing. This is a prophecy that we have seen fulfilled even in our day. And he tells us why in verse 20. That you may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. You see, God is able to take this desolate land, this rock-infested land that was dry and desolate and bring it to a place today. Fulfill a prophecy in our very eyes that God hand is still with Israel today. 
Israel would also produce and export fruit from all of this greenery. It's interesting because I was at a, at a, a, a car buying some stuff and when we lived in Wales and I looked on it, you know, how to put little labels on it and it said from Israel. I was thinking, man, that is so cool. Here I am in the, living in the UK and they're getting their produce from Israel. As a matter of fact, Israel actually exports more than they consume in their own nation today. That's how God has blessed them. When I went to Israel some years back, uh, we saw these greenhouses that uh, Israel had come up with a design to take and actually produce these vegetables and all these things in these greenhouses. If you look from Israel over into Jordan, Jordan's all brown. They were thinking, we want to know how to turn our land like yours. God's hand is upon Israel. God is blessing. God is fulfilling that. And here's Jordan still, this dry and desolate land. And Israel was giving them the technology to show them how they were able to get the water and get the sources and get the means to turn this nation of Israel into a crop-producing nation. That was God's doing. God did that. Isaiah 43, 5. Isaiah foretold of the worldwide return of the Jews to Israel. Isaiah 43, 5 says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. You see, Israel was going to be regathered into their land according to the prophets. It's a miracle. A nation that had been completely dispersed in 70 AD, <clears throat> excuse me, 70 AD, dispersed from their land all over the world. And that 2,000 years later, to come back into their land, as it was foretold by the prophet Isaiah, it's a miracle of God. In Zechariah chapter 8, Zechariah prophesied that the Jews would return to Jerusalem. Zechariah 8, 7 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Whenever you see that, when God is speaking, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. You can read about that also in Jeremiah 30. Jeremiah 32, Ezekiel 38, how the Lord brought and has brought Israel, the dry bones of Ezekiel 38. This is all prophecy that we have seen fulfilled in our day. Isn't that exciting? Isaiah prophesied that Israel's deserts would become like the Garden of Eden. Isaiah 51, 3, for the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert 
like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Again, these are all prophecies that we have seen fulfilled concerning the nation of Israel in our day. Is God going to be faithful to all the prophecies looking ahead? Everything looking forward, what, what we read in the book, and as we go through the book of Revelation, he is. But before we get into really deeper into the book of Revelation, as I've already said to you, I want you to have a stance, a conviction upon what you believe. I don't want it to be just because I'm teaching my interpretation of the book of Revelation. By the way, there's no private interpretation by anyone. God's word says what it says. It's up to me to figure that out. I don't just make it my interpretation and that makes it true. God says it. It's up to me to figure out what God has said. But I'm going to share with you what my beliefs are concerning end times events. But I want you to have your own personal conviction based upon some of the things that I'm going to share with you even this morning before we get into the book of Revelation. Now what will that require on your part? It might require some homework on your part. I would be taking some notes or I would listen to this message again and I would start searching out some of the things that I'm sharing with you now so that you yourself will have a personal conviction concerning end times. I want you to understand my eschatological view, which is really just the study of end times. I'm not going to be exhaustive this morning because we don't have the time for it, but I want you to understand the various views concerning the book of Revelation that are out there. I want you to know what's out there, what people are saying, and some of these terms and things that I might share. You said, well, I've heard that before. I'm not quite sure where I stand on that. I want you to have a conviction about it. And I think as we go through the book of Revelation, it'll become more clear to you. The first one that I want to talk about is dispensations. Now, I'm not a hyper-dispensationalist, and there are those that are. Uh, dispensations really speak of specific periods of time in biblical history where God dealt with mankind in different ways. I see that dispensations are clearly apparent throughout the Bible. You can see a little chart if you can read that up there. These are some of the major dispensations that we can find in Scripture. It's important for us to know that God deals and has dealt with mankind in different ways at different times throughout world history. Let me give you just on that chart the seven major dispensations. We have the age of innocence in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Uh, this would be the time before the fall, before man sinned in the garden. 
And then you have the age of conscience after the fall in Genesis 4 to 8. You have now man falling to sin and God putting a curse upon this earth. A different period, a different way in which God was now working with mankind. You have the dispensation or the period of government from Genesis chapter 9 to Genesis 11. You have the, the period of time, the promise from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 15. You have the time of the law, which spreads over a, a long period of time from Exodus 1 to Acts 1. This time frame that is referred to as the law. We call it the Old Covenant. We call it our Old Testament. We're not living under the Old Covenant anymore as a church. We're not living under the law. We have the church age that we are in now from Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church, to Revelation chapter 3, I believe. And then the last one is the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. It's going to be a whole different thing, a whole different ballgame. Each one of these is. And I think it's very obvious when you read your Bible that there are dispensations. Why do I say that? Why do I bring up dispensations in regard to Revelation? Because there are those that don't believe in dispensations. There are those that would say, oh, I don't believe in, you know, God does, you know, everything. No, God dealt with people differently under the law than he does under the age of grace. It's very obvious in scripture. And so as we enter into the book of Revelation, we're going to have to consider a different dispensation or a period of time, this seven-year tribulation period where God is going to deal with mankind in a different way. When you come to the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, it's going to be a different dispensation of time of God setting himself up as king on, throne, on the throne of David during that millennial reign. I believe also in a literal interpretation of the Bible and prophecy. A literal interpretation. And that's an opposite of spiritualizing prophecy. That's opposite of allegorizing the book of Revelation. Spiritualizing the book of Revelation or figuratively interpreting the book of Revelation. There are many that do. You're going to hear different. If you spend much time looking at Bible pride, you'll see that there are people that spiritualize the book. And they allegorize it. They, they say it's all just figurative language. It's just a bunch of signs. and you know It's just figurative. But I believe that we're to take and my method and mode of reading my Bible is that I'm a literalist. In other words, when I read something in the Bible, I read it for what it says. I'm reading a book, I'm reading a letter as if God is writing something to me to be understood very simply. Not for me to sit and allegorize it, not for me to spiritualize it, not for me to come up with my own ideas of what that's saying, because it doesn't make sense to me. 
or I don't have enough faith to believe that that could happen. And there are many that do. And so we have to formulate, you have to formulate, what's your stance when you read your Bible? For me, it's a literal interpretation of what I read. And I believe that the literal method of study gives to each word that you read in your Bible the same exact basic meaning that it would have uh, it, under normal, ordinary circumstances. I know there's culture involved. I know there's different things that we look at when we read our Bibles. But the customary and the simple usage when you read your Bible, just keep it simple. If God says something in there, just read it for what it says. You know what I'm talking about. Wait till we get further into the book of Revelation and you see all these things appeal. Those are just a bunch of symbols. Those are just a bunch of, you know, but we have to have a stance on how we're going to approach those things. To put it simply, I believe that God's word was written simply so that we could understand it at face value. And when you see types and symbols and parables and things that we do and dreams and things in the Bible, it's either going to be revealed in the text itself what the meaning of that is, or you're going to find it in some other passage of Scripture that defines what that symbol is. And it takes work to do that at times, but... There's nothing in Scripture that is meant to put there and go, we're just scratching it. Well, what is that? You need to search it out. Or look in the text, look a little further. We'll see one of those coming up actually next week. I don't think that this letter of Revelation was written in such a way that we should have to guess. I don't see God writing anything to us that way. Or that we would need to spiritualize it, come up with some kind of a, you know, a interpretation of it that sounds good. I don't see God writing to us that way. I believe that the literal reading of prophecy is the best method. And I believe that this method generally leads to what I call a futurist interpretation of prophecy. A futurist interpretation. You see, there are four main views that people hold to when it comes to the book of Revelation. When they approach this book of Revelation, they approach it through different lenses. One of those lenses is called the historical view of the book of Revelation. The other one, the next one that I'm going to talk about is the preterist view. And then there's the idolist view. And then what I believe is the right one is the futurist view. So what is the historical view that people would look at when they read Revelation? They approach the study of Revelation like it's an unfolding of all of church history. That's all it is. It's not prophetical. It's just simply a history book that unfolds all of these events throughout church history. There's no rapture in this view. 
There's no literal seven-year tribulation in that view. It is the historical view. Then there's the preterist view. Now, the term preterist is based on the Latin word preter, which means this, past, P-A-S-T, past. Why do they call them preterists? Because they're through the lens, through the preterists, looking at the book of Revelation, what they believe is that all of the prophecies of the book of Revelation, they were all fulfilled by the year 70 A.D., Remember that Jesus died somewhere around 32, 33 A.D. By 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed. The Jews were dispersed out of their land. The preterists believe that all of the things that you read in your Bible concerning the end times, that these things were fulfilled by the year 70 A.D. Here's the major problem that preterists have. Most Bible scholars, most historians, I should say, uh, that have tried to date the book of Revelation, most of the majority of them date this book sometime around 95 to 96 AD. That is a big problem for the preterists because John in his writing here, this would have been after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Uh, John is then, it, it forces us to have to say that what John is writing then in light of what the preterists say, this is things that are still future. You see, the preterists, again, they do not see the events of revelation as something future. It all was completed by 70 AD. So you have the historical view, you have the preterist view. You also have what some hold to as the idolist view. Now the idolists, they believe that the book of Revelation is primarily a symbolic description of an ongoing battle between God and the devil. Okay, so just read, if you were reading the book of Revelation, you go, man, I didn't get that. You know, there's this, this battle in heaven between God and Satan. They're called the idolists. And they believe that it's really just a description of good and evil being battled out. People that hold on to this view, they're often the ones that spiritualize the book of Revelation. They take all of these things that we read as a literalist and they spiritualize it and they come up with these wars and these things that are going on. That's the idolist. They also do not look at the book of Revelation as anything future. And then there's the futurist view, which is what I am. This is the one that I hold to. The futurist interpretation sees chapter 4 to chapter 22 of the book of Revelation as predictive of future events that are going to come upon this earth and it's during and after the return of Jesus Christ. It's going to be speaking about something future, the establishment of his kingdom on earth and a thousand year millennial reign of Christ that I take as literal. Seven year tribulation period, a thousand year millennial reign of Christ that will follow after that. And I believe that it's this futurist view 
that is really the only one that sees this book as prophecy. It's, a, it's not a history book. It's a book of prophecy. It's a, a book of end times events. You see, God gave promises to you and I. And we sang that song, actually. All the promises of God are yes and amen. God's given promises to us as Christians. He's told us what's going to come to pass. He told us what he's going to do with the church and what he's going to do with those that don't know Christ. Promises to you and I that we can stand upon. I also believe, and this is another thing that's important for you to come to your own conviction, but do it scripturally. Do it based upon your searching out of these things. I believe the scriptures teach a pre-tribulation rapture as opposed to a post-tribulation rapture, as opposed to a mid-tribulation rapture. I'm a pre-trib. I believe in a pre-trib rapture, which means that the church is going to be removed before a seven-year tribulation period comes upon this earth. I'm also, uh, let's, let's talk about post-trib. Post-trib, if you didn't already know this, post-trib, the post-trib view is that the church is going to be removed from this earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, which means that you as a Christian are going to go through the tribulation period. The mid-trib theory, or people that hold to that view, uh, believe that at the middle of the tribulation period, primarily because it's the second half of the tribulation period that is called the Great Tribulation, they put, and for other reasons, they put the rapture of the church at the middle of the tribulation period. It's called the mid-trib rapture. And they believe, for their own reasons, that's when it's going to take place. I believe, pre-trib, we will be removed before the seven-year tribulation period begins. All of these things that I'm saying to you now that you might think, I'm not going to remember all these different things if you didn't already know them, you will by the time we get to the end of Revelation because many of these things I'm going to be speaking about as we go forward. So when we get to the 22nd chapter of Revelation, you're going to go, I have a stance and a conviction of what I believe. That's what I'm seeking to accomplish. We also have... A, another area that we need to answer in our own convictions. It has to do with the millennial kingdom to come. Now you have the amillennialists, which they hold to this view. They don't believe there's going to be a literal thousand year reign of Christ. Again, it goes back to that literal interpretation of things. They don't believe that there is going to be a 1,000 year literal reign of Christ on this earth, Christ sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem, and the church reigning with Christ for a thousand years, they're the amillennialists, which 
simply means no millennia. There's the post-millennialist that believe that Christ is going to return after the thousand-year reign of Christ. He's going to not be for the thousand years, but after. Those are the post-millennialists. Then there's premillennialism, which is what I hold to. I believe that Christ is going to return to earth literally and bodily before the millennial age, that dispensation that I was talking about, begins, where Jesus is going to establish his kingdom here on earth in which he's going to reign for a thousand years. The prophets foretold of it. As a matter of fact, there is more spoken of the millennial kingdom of Christ than anything else. You read in the Old Testament, much, there's much scripture, much prophecy, looking ahead, future, to where Jesus Christ is going to sit on the throne of David again. We'll... Uh, We'll be actually talking more about actually the millennium as we go through the book of Revelation. So we're not going to get into the specifics of that or the rapture right now. I just want you to know the views. And then we have the covenants. I know this is laborious. I'm drawing close to an end. But I want you to know these views because it's important and you have in your own stance. Four main covenants that we see in scripture in the Old Testament that are important for us to understand when we get into the book of Revelation. The first one is the covenant that God made with Abraham and his seed, Genesis chapter 12. The covenant that God made with Israel over the land of Palestine in Deuteronomy chapter 30. The Davidic covenant that God made with King David concerning the throne and God's future and eternal kingdom here on earth is another covenant that God made with David and his line. And then we have the new covenant that God promised Israel. And you can read about that in Jeremiah 31. You can read about it in Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37. This is going to be an everlasting covenant that God made with the nation of Israel that would look ahead to that time when God would set up his kingdom here on earth under that thousand year millennial reign where God was going to put into their hearts his laws and he was going to be their God and they're going to be his people. God was going to bring full circle a nation of people that had turned away from him that had rejected him. He's going to bring them to the end of the tribulation period. They're going to look upon him whom they have pierced. And then there are going to be many of those Jews that are going to go into the millennial reign of Christ. And this covenant, this new covenant that God promised Israel is going to be fulfilled in that time. These covenants, it's important for you to know when a covenant is made by God with someone, or something. It's essential. God can't renege on it. He can't turn back on it. These covenants, they're essential uh, covenants for us to understand so that you don't get mixed up when you read the book of Revelation. You don't get it mixed up and start thinking that, 
all the terminology we see going through the book of Roma is referring to the church. We're all going through the tribulation period, but it's actually speaking of Israel. And we'll get into that more as we go forward. Drawing close. Some translations. They give this letter the title Revelation. That's singular. That's not plural. That's not revelations. It's revelation. And that's because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's bringing full circle to this last book of the Bible, the unveiling of Jesus Christ and God's plan for the entire world is being laid out in this last book of the Bible. It's translated also the apocalypse, which means by definition to uncover or to unveil. It's like taking the covering off of something, an unveiling truth. That's what revelation means. We'll finish in verse 3 of our text. Blessed is he who reads and who hears the words of this prophecy and keeps those things that are written in it for the time is near. We see this word blessed seven times throughout the book of Revelation. It could also be put this way, spiritually happy. Blessed. Spiritually happy. We read it already in verse 3. In Revelation 14, 13, then I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, they say, the spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. But what a blessing that's going to be. There are going to be many that are going to die during the tribulation period. He's saying blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Because it's going to be a horrendous time. There are going to be many by this time, two-thirds of the world population will have been killed. I'm not going to be able to read to you all these blessed ones, but there's seven of them. Revelation 16, 15, Revelation 19, 9, Revelation 26, and Revelation 22, 7, Revelation 22, 14, all start with blessed are those. And so there's a blessing upon you, upon me, those that would read this book, that would understand what they're reading that they would do the things that they're reading in this book. There's a special blessing. And as a matter of fact, the blessing that's attributed to this book, there's no other book of the Bible that says you're blessed if you read this book. But it is in the book of Revelation. Oh, I hate winding down this way. Coming, but we're out of time. I know. But I'm going to encourage you all that you would read ahead. And we're going to move at a, a different pace going forward. But in a lot of the things that I shared today, I'm going to be bringing these things out as we go along. So that you're building a conviction in your heart. That's what I want. I want you to have a strong conviction about what you believe. Not because Pastor Greg said he's a pre-trib guy. And not because, you know, but because this is what you see in Scripture. 
And so that's my, my goal in going through this book. And so let's have the ushers come up. We're going to partake of communion together. We'll close on that. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to look at the things which John saw. And we're going to be covering chapter 1, verses 4 to 20. We're going to actually knock out the rest of the chapter next week. So it, it'll, it'll move along a little quicker going forward. But read ahead in your Bibles. It's okay. I would, I would encourage you all, pick up the book of Revelation and start reading it. Just spend some time in that first chapter at least. And then as we're going forward, read ahead so that when we get to these areas that may be big question marks in your mind, maybe some of those things on a Sunday morning will get answered. So read your Bibles ahead. And so let's all stand.